The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author, teacher, Naomi Katz, author of Beautiful, Being an Empowered Young Woman. It all started with a cat call. Naomi Katz was on her way to teach her seventh grade class when she heard the cat calls that are only too common on the sidewalks of New York. As usual, it made her feel angry and helpless, and it made her wonder. If this was how she felt, how did it affect the girls in her class who were dealing with this at 13 or 14? The answer shocked and galvanized her to create a course she teaches around the world now recreated as a no-nonsense and reassuring guide called Beautiful. Uh, Naomi Katz is the visionary behind the Beautiful Project. Welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on this morning, Naomi. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So, um, as I said, I guess not only were you not feeling powerful and beautiful when these guys start yelling cat calls at you, you felt the opposite helpless, diminished, um, and I assume you had one of those aha moments. So um, what happened next? Well, I actually was working in a school where there were pretty open and close relationships of general conversation between the students and the teachers, and I was probably the youngest teacher in the school at the time, just out of college, and all of the 7th and 8th grade girls would often crowd around my desk and talk to me about their lives, talk to me about different questions that they were considering and facing. And so I talked to them about the cat calls because I wanted to see if it was happening to, to younger girls as well, which, as you said, I found out they did, that it did. And the, cla- the girls asked me if I would do a girls' group at the school. There was a mini-term where regular classes were canceled and teachers taught electives. And the girls asked me if I would do an all-girls mini-term class. And I did. And it was incredible. What were the surprises? I mean, were you surprised? Well, first of all, were you surprised, and I was surprised, actually, that, I mean, these girls in in middle school, these 13- or 14-year-olds are getting catcalls. I I guess I didn't realize that it happened at such a young age, uh, number one. So um, for me, that was a surprise. And, you know, in in what kinds of circumstances they were getting them, and obviously they, uh, what, felt the same way you did, powerless, diminished, not feeling good about themselves, not feeling complimented. I can't say that I was completely surprised when I found out that they were getting, or when they told me that they were getting catcalled, because most of these girls, you know, even they were, though they were 13 and 14 years old, a lot of them were already, you know, after puberty and had women's bodies and young women's bodies. And in t- today's society, young women's bodies are considered objects in most cases, unfortunately. And so, you know, in a, in a culture where men are used to 
leering and jeering and just really expressing themselves in a really lewd and inappropriate way, for that to happen to these very attractive, very young women, it, it unfortunately was not a surprise. Can it ever be a compliment? Can can those, I mean, mean, you say leering and jeering, but can it ever be a compliment, let's say, when a young girl walks by, or or not necessarily a young girl, just a woman, and someone, a man, for instance, a stranger compliments your beauty? Or is it always something that has to be a negative, or is it the way in which they do it, or they say it, or they shouldn't say it at all, or they shouldn't express themselves at all? I think it's the way that it comes across. You know, of course, there's some measure of compliment in there because you're drawing someone else's attention, which we try to do all the time. But the way that it happens, you know, from the opposite side of the street or the things that are being said, that's just not, you know, often they're just really inappropriate. And also the other thing is that if somebody really wants to compliment me, then, then approach me and talk to me and say hello and tell me your name. But just to call out, I mean, that's just another version of the same objectification that we see in advertising and just in the media in general. So it's crude and it's lewd, actually, is, is what you're talking about. It, it's important to put it in a, in a context. So what about these girls? What were some of their stories? I mean, there are a lot of stories and different stories. And I would imagine each girl, depending on her level of you know, from a social worker's perspective, like her own levels of self-esteem. How does she handle it? How do each one handle these situations? Because I'm sure it's not always the same. Um, The thing is, is that because of the age difference generally between the girls and the people who are calling them out, I don't think that the girls really can or should do anything because it could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because they're putting themselves, you know, I think they just need to collect their inner resources and carry on walking. And know that the behavior is inappropriate and that they deserve better and that they shouldn't stand for that, you know, in, in the way of giving it power and making them feel upset. But at the same time, it's a kind of complicated, confusing phenomenon for teenage girls because there are some girls whose bodies are mature and who are receiving these kinds of responses. And then there are some girls who still look like little girls. And so they were being called out much less, if at all. And we're waiting for it in the same way that a young woman, you know, when she starts to mature, waits to be able to buy her first bra or to have her period the first time. And so they were waiting for these catcalls in a way like a rite of passage to be recognized as women on the street. So in other words, they wanted to be, they were sort of defining themselves, is that what you're saying? Defining themselves or, or defining how attractive they were and how appealing they are and by these you know, strangers are, you know, yelling out catcalls, and that is where the, and, but really not being empowered. Empowerment has to come with, from within, obviously. So um, that's very sad to think about those young girls, the ones you're talking about, who, you know, felt like, you know, they're not attractive or they're not, whatever, they're, they are not feeling good about yourself until someone's, like, yelling at you, you know, calling you names, um, objectifying you. Um, I thought that, you know, have we come, it doesn't seem like we've come too far. This is something that's been going on for, you know, generations. Um, and is it, still, is it getting better or is it, you know, in terms of how men view women or is it just the same as it's always been? I don't know if it's the same as it's always been, but there are other factors that are affecting it. And so, for example, especially for teenagers today, and this is different from when I started this work over 15 years ago, especially for teenagers today, the 
popularity of social media and the massive role that social media has in the lives of teenagers is actually adding to the question of or to the phenomenon of objectification because social media is a super image-based world and we live already in an appearance-based world in some ways and so when you compound that with social media when kids are putting pictures of themselves up online to be evaluated to be liked or not to be liked or to be commented on and we live in this world where what draws attention is sex and sexualization, then too often young people, girls in particular, but also boys, are putting really sexualized pictures of themselves online. And so that means that they're putting themselves in certain poses or clothing or lack of clothing, and they probably in most cases aren't really ready to do that. But that's what our culture is telling them that they need to do. And so they're basically putting themselves on display and then measuring their popularity, which what was for us when we were teenagers, just simply you knew who was popular and who wasn't. Now it's quantifiable, and that can be really painful. So you put together a guide, your book, as well as a beautiful project. I want to hear all about that so to counteract all of this. So what do you do? How do you do it? What do you tell us? In the, what, what, what are some of the, the key issues that you, that you, hit, you, know, that you uh, hone in on in the book to help young women obviously not get engaged in this kind of really negative behavior, which is not positive and not empowering? Because your book is empowering. So what do they do? What, are they, what should they do? What should they be aware of to empower themselves in a positive way? I mean, the first thing really and the foundation of my work is about working with young people to cultivate a sense of confidence and a sense of self-esteem that can carry them through all of the experiences in their lives. And so that means, you know, to understand who am I, what's important to me in my life, what do I want, how do I make decisions, that's a huge one, what factors do I consider when I make decisions, how do I listen to myself, how do I listen to my intuition, And those are things that young people often lose sight of, and especially today when the world is so fast-paced and we hardly make time for ourselves to slow down, to hear that inner voice that really should be our primary guide. So that's the foundation, to really work with young people around that, to understand each of us who we are and what makes us tick, and to value that. I guess awareness, you really do have to be aware of, of not only of yourself, but of what's around you, as you're saying, and what does impinge on your choices and how you make these choices. And I get what you're saying is that sometimes young girls really don't think about that, and they get so engaged, particularly with social media, they get caught up in it without really standing back and taking a look at it and examining themselves and their thoughts and why they're doing what they're doing to either attract people or to feel good about themselves. It's not only that they don't um, pay attention to what their inner voice is, but also I think adults too, we often don't even make time to consider that. Our world moves so fast today that it's rare to have some time, especially for you know, a young person who's in an, almost an obsessive way on social media nearly all the time, to have a moment just to do nothing. Those don't exist anymore, and it's in those moments that we really connect with that inner voice that can guide us. So how and do you so get women? How do you not really live in a culture that? where that's cultivated? No, you're absolutely right. But how, and as you say, they're 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 online. They're on social media all the time. How do you get them to stop and do that? Well, what's the process? I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to teach young people that their voices are valuable, 
because often they don't receive those messages, particularly from adults. And they don't necessarily consider the things that they think or the things that they have to say as important. So first of all, just to let them know that, not even necessarily by telling them, by letting them feel that. So for example, you know, when I run a workshop or when I run a group, I listen really openly and carefully to all of the things being said by all the girls, and I, and I model that listening for them to do the same for each other. And so that's already a really big difference, especially from, you know, even with some of the greatest teachers, the teachers need to accomplish certain things in their classrooms. They have certain targets that they need to hit. And so it can't always be a place just to hear what kids are saying. And so that's kind of the first stage, to, to really let them know that their voices are important and what they have to say is meaningful. Second of all, to talk to them about slowing down, which we all need to do, myself included. But to really talk to them about making time to do an activity that's meaningful to them, not because they want to be the best at it or not because they want to you know, put, the, put it on their application to college, but just because they enjoy it. And to have time for that activity on a regular basis. Also to have time to just do nothing. To just be and, and listen to the voices in their head or not. And, you know, if they can manage not to think and just to simply exist, that's another. Those are really, really useful tools to help them engage in a meaningful way with the fast-paced culture in which we live. Uh, you're giving them the tools to do that, uh, let's say in your workshops. So what happens? Like they, uh, and just give us a framework for the workshop. Like how long does it last? Um, do you, is it over a period of time or is it like just a one-shot deal? Or, and do you come back and get feedback from them in terms of, like say, these tools that you've taught them, how it has worked for each one of these young women? As for the workshops, there are all different kinds of recipes, you know, ranging from an hour presentation at a school to a weekend-long retreat to an ongoing group that meets for, you know, a, I have some that have run, been running for multiple years. But I'll give you an example with connection specifically to those practices that I'm talking about. This past weekend, I facilitated a retreat called Real Talk About Sex for teenage girls, high school girls. And it was a mix between, it was two days, and it was a mix between sitting together in a group and having a conversation and also working in smaller groups and also having time alone to journal. And you could see that, you know, if we gave the girls, for example, a half an hour to journal, some of them would sit for the whole half hour and, and maybe we would even have to make an extra effort to call them back when we tried to return to the large group. Whereas others, after a few minutes, would come back to the main circle where we were sitting because they just didn't have practice at the practice of being with themselves and collecting their thoughts. And it's something that develops over time. You know, over the course of the weekend, we had a few journaling sessions, and I could see that they were becoming a little bit more comfortable. But it's not easy to be with yourself, especially when we have so many thoughts running through our minds and so many things that, that bother us, and especially when we have to face our own internal critic, which can be really, really strong. And that's another thing I work with my, my girls on, to understand that sometimes we are really critical of ourselves and that that can be really dangerous. Are there, I, 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 let's take this past weekend that you're talking about, real talk about sex. Were there any surprises for you in terms of these girls, in terms of what they were wrestling with or struggling with, um, you know, in their own lives and, and what they shared with you, I guess, and what they shared with the group? 
Of course. You know, of course, there's always surprises. At the same time, it's, it's no surprise in general the kinds of questions that they're asking because specifically on the subject of sex, we are really falling short as a society in terms of the way that we're educating our young people. So unfortunately, it didn't come as a surprise to me, but it often does when I share with other adults that the main education and the primary initiation that most young people, girls and boys, are having today around sex is through pornography. That's a surprise. That's a surprise to me. I mean, that is, you're saying with both boys and girls, and and girls, I guess maybe it surprises me more, but that's their introduction to sex? That's where they get their information from, pornography on the net? Yeah, usually, because they're, you know, it makes sense, because they're curious. We live in a culture where sex is present everywhere, advertising, you know, just in every element of our lives, there's the presence of this influence. And so... Kids are naturally curious, not to mention the fact that they have their own personal physical feelings that also make them curious. And unlike when I was a teenager, now pornography is really easily available for kids to look at. And so that's where they're getting a lot of education. And what kinds of questions do they have, you know, about, you know, if they're watching pornography, that's where they're getting their information about themselves and their bodies and sex and and boys, Um, what kinds of, you know, I guess I keep, you know, what kinds of questions did they have in the context of this, of the group that you had for the weekend? Like, what were they asking? I mean, because you're tired. I wouldn't say that their questions came so much from, from their experiences, you know, with learning from looking at pornographic images, but more the message of the weekend that we focused on with them is really to understand that it's up to you, that it's, your body, it's your decision. You decide and you guide the way the aspect of your life that is sexual will unfold. And so, first of all, you can always say yes and you can always say no. And that was a surprise to so many of them, which makes me a little bit sad, you know, to, to really work with them and remind them how decision-making is in their hands and then for, them to be, for that to be news to them. That was a little bit painful for me. So, in other words, they feel if, you know, a boy is, you know, controlling them and having sex that they need, they don't have, they can't say no, they have to say yes, or they'll be viewed as what? Um, they, if they don't give in. I mean, there's, there's all different kinds of factors, you know. There's, there's that that you're describing that maybe they'll be labeled as a prude or whatever the label is in their social circle. But, but even more than that, it's, it's coming from a different place. It's not necessarily about pressure from the sexual partner, but more about, again, valuing the self. Because, you know, those interactions, I mean, we've all been there at some point, those interactions, especially when you realize that you don't want to be there anymore, they they can be really awkward. And that awkwardness is uncomfortable. And in order to stand by whatever it is that you think in that kind of an awkward situation, you have to be pretty sure of yourself. You have to feel pretty confident to express yourself in that way. And so... It's that place of that self-confidence to kind of push through that awkwardness and say, you know what, I'm not comfortable here, or 
I have to go, or I don't want to do this right now. And that's the, that's the place that really needs to be cultivated. And yes, for sure, we need to work on education. You know, consent doesn't always have to be something that comes from the girl. We also need to teach our boys and our men about what it means to ask and what it means to, and, and these are, I'm being really stereotypical right now. You know, there are situations where girls pressure boys too. And of course, there's also situations where girls are with girls and boys are with boys. But the, the place of being sure of oneself and feeling confident enough to express what you feel, that's the key. Yeah. No matter who you decide to, to be with, yeah, you have to feel good about yourself. And as you say, I mean, that is so important. So you've given them, like in your book um, and also in your um, workshops, those tools to be able to do that, to be able to say, you know, I, you know, I'm a good person, I can make my own choices, and I can feel good about myself, whatever those choices are. I don't, I, I'm not going to just succumb to what somebody else wants just to, to make them feel better. And so that's what you're doing, I assume, uh, helping them to make healthy choices, obviously, and giving them the tools to do that and feel good. Um, how would a parent fit into this? Because I would assume, I mean, and uh, I guess that's number one. And number two, the girls who choose to be in the workshops, would these be young girls who don't, uh, don't feel confident? I mean, or don't feel good about themselves? Or who are the workshops for? Or who is the book for? Or is it just, you know, generally it's, a, it's good to have the kinds of uh, tools and knowledge that you're talking about in your book. Real talk, I guess. I mean, I think generally it's really important. The, the people who come to my workshops are a huge mix because sometimes I, I present at a school and so it's all the kids who are in the school and sometimes it's something where, you know, g- girls sign up on an individual basis, either the girls themselves or their parents or a teacher recommends them. And so it's really a huge mix of girls from all different kinds of backgrounds and also gr- all different kinds of relationships with themselves. The book is for, the main audience is for adolescent girls but, you know, I'm talking about adolescent girls going up into their early 20s. And I only say that because my former students have read it and have said, wow, this is still relevant for me. But actually, I wrote the book because of the dream of the father of one of my students who felt like his teenage daughters weren't listening to him. And he had a publishing house, and he said, listen, I want to provide something for my girls and for other parents like me who are trying to support their daughters. And so the book is also really relevant for parents to have a bit more of an insight into what their daughters are going through. Yeah, I would imagine. And of course also educators and other people who work with young women. Right. The teachers, the parents, and the the students. I mean, we've been talking a lot about peer pressure, but there's other topics that you talk about. and I want you to, because I'm not sure I understand it, but, you know, when you're talking about sex, you talk about understanding the hookup culture. What exactly is that, and how does that apply to these young girls, like middle school girls, for instance, or does it? I mean, hookup culture can mean a lot of things, but I would imagine that you're referring to a culture where young people, and, and people in general, are engaging in sexual interactions without necessarily being in a relationship with the person which, who, with whom they're being sexual and so that happens all the time, and that happens all the time with young people, and it happens all the time with adults. And, you know, there's something about it that, especially for young people, is useful and very natural because they want to experiment and they want to feel their way literally through navigating this experience of being sexual and of, of expressing sexuality. And that doesn't always have to happen in the context of a relationship if they're comfortable. 
The problem is that often, you know, hookup culture also brings with it some culture around drugs and alcohol and also some peer pressure and also social expectations to do certain things, to lose your virginity by a certain age, to have a first kiss by a certain age. And those rules, we can call them maybe, are not applicable across the board. Everybody needs to make their own decisions when they feel ready. And so the good side about being, you know, about having a sexual interaction with someone with whom you're in a relationship is hopefully the communication And I say hopefully because it's not always the case for teenagers or for adults that we're having open communication around sex. When we're talking about hookup culture, it can also be a case of communication. You know, we could be talking about friends or we could be talking about even two people who just have a good connection and are communicating both verbally and with their bodies. Um, But sometimes that's not the case. And then that can be upsetting and, and uncomfortable. Are we also talking about trust if you're in a relationship with somebody that you do know and you've established some kind of, uh, you know, there is a communication and a certain amount of intimacy, then trust comes into play too. And it seems to me with the hookup stuff, like how do you trust people and you have stuff, you know, sexual health and, and, and pregnancy and all of those kinds of things. It, it just seems kind of uh, scary, I guess. And especially if you have 13 or 14-year-olds who perhaps do feel good about themselves, but do they have actually the capacity to make those kinds of decisions about hooking up with people they don't know? I think it really depends. You know, I think it's really individual. And we're not necessarily talking about hooking up with people that they don't know. Sometimes we are, and and that can be a bad situation. And for sure, it's important to talk to young people about that. The thing that I also, though, try to keep in mind is that so much of the sex education that we do provide for young people when we do provide it is about risks and about dangers and about, you know, things like that. And that isn't necessarily the only message that we want to give them. I mean, sex is an enjoyable aspect of our lives and should give them pleasure and they should enjoy it. They should feel comfortable in themselves and they should feel like they're enjoying the experience of exploring their bodies and experimenting with other people. And so, yes, of course we need to talk to young people about the risks and about pregnancy and about understanding what they're getting into. But I really try not to do it in a way that is all about that. It's all about prevention and all about being careful and all about dangers. So I don't want to tell the young people with whom I work that hookup culture is bad because I don't think it is. I think that it can serve a purpose, and I think that it's okay as long as you're communicating. And trust is definitely a factor, you know, but I would say to, about friendships too, don't put yourself in a situation where you don't trust. If you don't trust the person, then you don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And I also always tell my, my girls, if you can't talk about it in terms of sex, you shouldn't be doing it. And, that, and that's a good guideline to follow because it gives a sense of, okay, I need to feel comfortable to a certain extent to be able to discuss, to say how I feel, to share what I'm going through, and also to talk about something after if, if I want to. I think that's why, I mean, your book is so good because guideline is what you're saying. And I so believe, I think it's so important, and I think we tend to do this as a culture, maybe um, this kind of like, you know, just say no to drugs or just say no to this, or, and it doesn't work because you really have to talk about it and, and, and just like sex. And we always seem to, as a culture, I think we're still doing that, 
you know, just say no to sex and sex is bad and sex is not good when we know, particularly as teenagers and going through puberty, you really have the opportunity to feel great about your body and feel great about sex and it can be a good thing, but you need the guidelines, which is what you do in your book and your workshop. So I think that's really key because I think there's a lot of that, whether it's with teachers or parents, it's bad, it's not good, stay away from it, and, you know, that's not going to happen anyway. So you really do need the kind of the guides or the tools, I think, that you are providing. So, um, yeah. Not only the guides and the tools, but also... You know, that approach, whether it's about sex, whether it's about drugs and alcohol, whether whatever it's about, that approach of don't, 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 it creates, in my experience, somewhat of a closed channel of communication. And what we really, really want as adults and particularly as parents is for the communication between ourselves and our children to be open. We want them to trust us. It's really important that they don't feel like we're saying no to everything and it's especially important that they don't feel like we're judging their choices even if, if it we were, have an opinion about what their choices should be because we want them to talk to us. Exactly. There's only a minute left, but, uh, yeah, and I think also when you do that as a parent or who, and you, you're saying don't know all the time, uh, it really, talk about diminishing how a young woman feels about herself because you, if you do feel good about your body and you do have sexual feelings and they are positive, that makes you really feel guilty and ashamed and uh, ashamed of yourself and your thoughts and your body, and that's not a good thing. That's what, not what you want to do. So, um, well, given that, we have like 30 seconds left. So, Naomi Katz, um, author of Beautiful, Being an Empowered Young Woman, what website can we go to to learn more about, well, your workshops and your, and your book and where we get more information about you and what you're doing? Beautifulproject.net. That's it. Thanks so much That's for being it. on the show. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is plastic surgeon Anthony Yoon. His new book is The Age Fix. A leading plastic surgeon reveals how to really look 10 years younger. Don't buy another overpriced cream. Hold off on that invasive procedure. Stop avoiding the reflection in the mirror. Get your age fixed. Dr. Anthony Yoon is the rare plastic surgeon, and that it is rare, who does everything he can to keep his patients out of the operating room. He's spent the past 16 years researching the secrets of plastic surgeons, dermatologists, makeup artists, and dietitians, and he knows what works and what doesn't work. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Yoon. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. I just want to do one other, this is another accolade or a testimonial, because uh, Dr. Travis Stork, who is uh, on the syndicated series The Doctors, he says this is a wonderful, this is the book, a wonderful read for anyone trying to look and feel their best. And the best part of Dr. Yoon's many tips, which we're going to be talking about, is that they will not only improve your outward appearance without surgery, they can also help improve your overall health, which, of course, is what we all want, and hopefully that's what our doctors want for us, right? Definitely. Okay. So what? You are the expert. You have these impressive credentials. What what can you tell us or what are you going to tell us about being beautiful and healthy that we don't already know? Yeah, I think that what people, a lot of people think that, you know, to look younger, to take 10 years off, the only way you can really do that is if you have surgery, you know, is if you have a facelift. And I guess what I would tell your listeners is that pretty much everybody can look 10 years younger without going under the knife. And there's so many things that we can do um, short of surgery that can really help to accomplish this. And I always started off with what we eat, you know, so what we eat in a, in a very dramatic way can determine how young we look and how quickly our skin ages. And I would start off by saying there are a few simple tips that I would recommend that can not only help you age more slowly, but it can help clear your skin up, it can uh, make your skin look more vibrant, and can make you look healthier from the inside out. And the first step would be to try to decrease the amount of sugar that you eat. Uh, so sugar, as I'm sure you've heard, is uh, considered to be really one of the great evils <laughs> of our diet. And what we find is that sugar can actually accelerate the aging process uh, by two different things. Uh, it can increase inflammation in our body, and that can uh, damage the healthy cells of our skin as well as our internal organs. But it can also lead to a process called glycation, where the sugar molecules can bond to some of the collagen and the elastin in our skin and cause it to age prematurely. So number one thing, if you do anything, try to decrease the amount of sugar that you eat. Uh, when you say try to do that, Dr. Yun, people will say, well, I try to do that. Um, but most people or many people, we, I would say, in the United States especially, don't seem to be doing that. I mean, we're overweight, we're obese. Um, how do we do that? How do we decrease the sugar? I mean, no, aren't they changing things on labels in the grocery stores that they're going to, you know, what does, you know, do you really have an idea of how much, what is the right amount of sugar to eat? I mean, in terms of grams or however it's mentioned, however it's labeled, um, how, do we, how do we do that? 
Well, I think the first thing that I would recommend, the easiest thing, is if you drink soda pop, really decrease the amount of soda pop you drink. Um, there are so many people that, let's say, go to the movies and they get the large Pepsi, and you know, you're drinking upwards of anywhere from 44 to 64 ounces of soda. I mean, the amount of sugar in that is astronomical. Now, I'm not one for banishing necessarily all these foods. I think it's very, very difficult for people to do that. But, you know, if you drink two cans of of soda a day, which a lot of people do, decrease it to one can, you know, eventually make it um, more of a, uh, let's say, Friday night, um, you know, reward for a, a hard, you know, week's work, you know. So trying to decrease the sugar would be a first step by decreasing the amount of soda pop that you drink. Uh, the second thing that, that you can do, obviously, that people know, you know, you can decrease the amount of desserts that you eat. You know, you don't have to not eat desserts, but maybe instead of having one every night, have one every other night and then every third night. Um, and then the final thing, which is very straightforward, is try to change from white to whole grains. Okay, so we can get sugar by these refined carbs that we eat that cause sugar spikes that can be just as damaging as eating dessert food. So try to to change from the white to the whole grains, whole wheat, and that can also help as well. So we're talking sugar is like the number one enemy or the quantity. It's not all or nothing, as you say, as you're describing. Uh, you don't have to completely stop eating sugar. But, no. No. But, but eating less is always the first step. And, and once again, it's not an all or nothing. You know, I'm not a, a fan of, let's say, the Atkins diet where you completely try to eliminate sugar. I think it's very, very difficult for people to do that and to stay that. But, but for those people, let's say, who are drinking, once again, you know, soda pop every day, that's something that you can do. You know, you're not addicted to that soda pop. You know, it's not the same thing as being addicted to smoking where you're going to get, um, you know, issues with uh, uh, withdrawal. Yeah. Um, so try to decrease the amount of that sugar by taking those types of simple steps. You know, if you drink coffee in the morning and you put two, two uh, spoonfuls of sugar in your coffee, decrease to one spoonful of sugar, you know, that type of thing. Those are things to, to try just, just to decrease the amount that you're having. So if you do that, on out, say on the outside, your skin is going to look better. Uh, you'll it will feel better, but you'll look better, be more radiant. Takes years off of your. Uh, well, I guess yeah. Oh, and does it do the same for the inside as well? I mean, what you see on oh, the yeah. outside is also reflected on the inside. Let's say if you cut down on the sugar as you're describing it. Yeah, and because and it's because the like once again for like the process of glycation, which is one of the main ways that sugar causes um, our skin to age prematurely. These are sugars that bond to collagen, and collagen not only makes our skin, but also makes our inner blood vessels, you know. And so cardiologists are, showing, are finding, too, the same thing. As people who eat a lot of sugar, uh, they're going to have a higher risk of heart disease. You know, if you decrease the amount of sugar that you eat, it, it can really affect your internal organs as well as, as you know, your skin on the outside, your, ex, your major external organ. So your skin on the outside... Does it get rid of the lines? I mean, you, you talk about that well, in your book, like the fine lines or even the not-so-fine lines, the deep wrinkles. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's not as simple as, hey, I'm going to stop drinking pop, and look, the wrinkles around my mouth are going to go away. Uh, it would be nice yeah. if that was the case. But that's where you have to then, you know, so the first step, once again, is what you eat, decreasing the sugar amount. Um, just real quick, and we don't have to dwell on it, but trying to increase the number of omega-3 fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids that you eat and decrease the amount of saturated and trans fat. So that's another thing. Um, okay. But, but I, really, now we do want to come, because when you talk about that, like m- maybe everyone isn't aware of what, what foods are they when you're talking about increasing omega-3 yep. and decreasing yep. the other. Yeah, okay. 
So, so it's all about good and bad fats, okay? So bad fats like saturated and trans fats are also inflammatory. And inflammation is kind of the big catch-all term of, of what a lot of these bad foods do to, to our system. Now, the bad fats we kind of know, you know, it's, it's, it's um, red meat, um, especially fatty red meats, cured meat like sausage, um, bologna, bacon, um, even a dark meat chicken has got a lot of that kind of saturated, the, the bad fats. The good fats are fats that are typically called monounsaturated and polyunsaturated or omega-3 fatty acids. The monounsaturated fatty acids are found in nuts like walnuts, um, peanuts, almonds, but it's also found in olive oil. It's found in avocados. Uh, it's found in um, uh, different types of beans as well. So these fats basically are anti-inflammatory, the good fats. They decrease inflammation. They actually increase even the moisturization of your skin from the inside out. The omega-3 fatty acids or the polyunsaturated fatty acids are kind of the same thing, are typically found in cold water fish. And that's why people talk about salmon and salmon being so good for you uh, because it does have a lot of these polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, you can also find it in other types of cold water fish like tuna, um, like mackerel, you know, those types of things as well. So those are the good fats, you know, trying to change from, um, you know, the, the sausage and the hamburgers and that type of thing and going more towards the fish as your protein. Uh, that's definitely the way to go as well as um, adding in other sources of fat like the nuts, like the avocados, the, the healthy oils like the olive oil and avocado oil. What about grass-fed beef? I mean, is that qualitatively grass-fed beef? You know, the kind that you get like in a health food, well, like say you get at Whole Foods, for instance, you, they, they advertise like grass-fed beef, beef, organic beef. Those is, can be better, yeah. but you still have to be cautious because they still, just the fact that it is a red meat, you're going to have to still deal with the saturated fats in that. But definitely those could be better, especially the, the leaner the, the beef, the better. Okay. The leaner the beef, the better, and yeah. cold water fish. Yeah. So the fish that we would get, say, from Florida or the Gulf is not as good as the fish that we would get from the North Atlantic or the North Pacific? Yeah, and it's the, it's the farmed fish that you have to be concerned about. Um, there are some reports and some doctors that believe, um, let's say, farmed tilapia actually is not, even, is not good for you. It's actually better not to eat it than to eat it. So those are things, you know... And, Specifics, you know, you have to look at each type of fish, unfortunately, but ideally wild-caught cold-water fish are going to be your better option. Okay. Now we're talking about what's good for you and what's not and what the better foods. Well, red wine is something that you say is, I mean, and I don't know if that's been controversial, but better to drink red wine than it is to drink soda. Yeah, so there's really yeah. three main things if you dietary-wise you want to look younger. Decrease the sugar increase the good fats and decrease the bad fats. And then the third thing is add a lot of antioxidants. Okay, so what exactly is an antioxidant? Well, all day our body is, um, is attacked by what are called free radicals. Free radicals are unstable molecules that can damage uh, the cells of our body, including the cells of our skin. And antioxidants neutralize free radicals. And you can get free radicals from... Um, sources like your internal body processes, we naturally create them. You can get it from UV radiation from the sun. You can get it from pollution in the air. And you can even get free radicals by eating bad processed foods. 
But our body's major defense against these free radicals are antioxidants. And, and you can ingest these by mouth, uh, and you can apply them onto your skin. The most popular antioxidant is vitamin C. So eating a lot of uh, colorful fruits and vegetables are a great way to get antioxidants into your system. Now, red wine has, has a very powerful antioxidant in it called resveratrol. Okay, and this resveratrol is great for fighting free radicals. And so I do recommend, if, if you can, drink, and, and if you don't have any issues with the alcohol and reaction like that, then to drink one glass of red wine a night is actually a good thing and can really help your skin. Well, that's good to know. I'd much rather drink red wine than soda. I don't drink soda, so, um, yeah, so that's, yeah, good advice. It sounds but great. But you don't want more than that because then the toxic effects of the alcohol start to take over. So really you want to limit it to one glass, you know. So having a bottle of wine every night is isn't not too a good much. Thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because the, the toxic effects of the alcohol are going to outweigh the benefits of the resveratrol. But one glass of red wine, as long as there isn't an alcohol issue, you know, with, with metabolizing it, is actually good for you. It's a good thing. Well, you talked about moderation in the beginning of the show, so it's always, yeah. we have to keep moderation in mind, right? It's Definitely. not all or nothing. All right, so, I mean, have we covered, like, basically the, 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 the fruits, the vegetables, the meat, or the fish that we should be eating? Um, and, and obviously it's more about it in the book, but let's go on to, like, creams and things, because we're talking about looking 10 years younger. I want to look 10 years younger, and, yeah. and there are a lot of people listening to the show who would like to look 10 years younger, which is... Can you do that postmenopausal? Yes. So there are four things that, that pretty much everybody should do. So if you combine the food with doing these types of things, you know, that can really help to take those years off. And now everybody, to look 10 years younger, once again, you know, and, and that's the basis of my book, is anybody can look 10 years younger by taking certain simple steps. But the steps that you may take may be a little bit different than a friend of yours. That being said, everybody should do four things at least with their skin. Okay, the first thing that you should do is apply a sunscreen every morning, okay, before you go out, at least an SPF 30. And a lot of moisturizers now that people wear on their skin contain sunscreen, so it makes it very easy. Uh, Because sun damage is the number one cause of premature aging of our skin, okay? And so protecting our skin is the number one thing. And you would do this even if you live in the north, you live in New York, or you live in the northeast, or you don't live in, not just if you live in a southern or tropical climate, you do it. Yep. Wherever you live? Yep, you because get even if it's yeah. cloudy, uh, up to 60% of the sun's rays will actually penetrate those clouds too. So what about vitamin D? Does that prevent you from getting vitamin D, which they say is good for you, and you get that from the sun? How does that work? No, I mean, what you want to do still is you don't necessarily have to cover every body part. And so let's say you're driving to work. You don't necessarily have to put sunscreen on your hands every morning, and people don't typically do that. So you're still going to get enough sun through the other areas. It's just I would start with the face mainly because that's where, you know, we really focus on our aging. Okay. Okay. Now, ideally, yes, would a dermatologist allow them to say to apply sunscreen to your entire body before you go out, you know, every day? You know, some dermatologists would would recommend that. Once again, we kind of talked about moderation before. I'm not under the impression that most people are going to put sunscreen on their hands and, and, uh, you know, any exposed body part before they leave. But the face is a different area, and it it really is where we focus on our aging. Um, And and skin cancer as well. You know, if you get a skin cancer on your hand and you have to have it cut off, the, the cosmetic trauma to that area isn't as big a deal as if you have a skin cancer on the tip of your nose and that needs to be cut off. So I strongly encourage people 
to apply the sunscreen to your face every morning. If you need to, you can always get your vitamin D levels checked and take a vitamin D supplement if necessary. Um, but definitely you want to especially protect your face. So if you want to do that, at what age do you do this? Because, you know, do you do it? Because we're talking about you're saying it's really good for your skin and you take 10 years off your life, but not to maybe get to the point where your skin isn't so good. Like if you start, what, would you put it on your kids or, or as a teenager? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely, even with children. But, yeah, I mean, this, obviously this is preventative. So that's not going to take 10 years off, but it's going to help prevent you, prevent the skin from, from aging. We'll get to the, the, other, the reversing here in a sec. Okay. All right, so, so go to number thing, two. Second thing is you want to apply an antioxidant every morning. So the sunscreen will protect your skin from the sun's rays, but it won't protect against these other free radicals. And that's where an antioxidant cream or serum every morning can really make a big difference. And the most popular one is vitamin C. The third thing you need to do, and this is going to be starting to turn the clock back now, is you want to exfoliate your skin three to, I'm sorry, two to three times per week if you have normal skin, once a week if you have more sensitive skin. Now, when well, you say exfoliate... normal skin? What is, what would, what is normal skin? Um, skin that typically uh, is not uh, super dry, that's not super sensitive, where if, let's say, for example... How do we exfoliate? The most common way to exfoliate is you can get an exfoliating scrub. You can buy these at drugstores or at uh, dermatologist's offices. It's typically kind of like a gritty material, almost like a sugar. And some people actually do use sugar as a scrub. And you scrub your face with it for 10 to 30 seconds to help help get rid of that upper layer of dead skin cells. Okay, Um, That's one way to do it. You can use a Clarisonic-type device. Um, so a handheld um, ultrasound-type device that will do that, or you can even do an at-home type of a chemical peel. Um, but, but you'll know if you're sensitive. I mean, most people who have sensitive skin know because they put creams on and they react very quickly. You know, if you exfoliate your skin um, and it causes your skin to feel very red and irritated, then you may have sensitive skin, and, you, and it's not something you're going to want to do two or three times a week. However, what? if you do exfoliate your skin, and let's say you use that scrub for 30 seconds, and your skin feels nice and fresh afterwards, and the next day it feels fresh and softer, then you probably have skin that can tolerate that two to three times a week. Well, maybe I should let you get to the fourth one because uh, before I ask the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, okay. like time frame, because people say, well, I don't have time to do all this. I know it's going to work. How long is it going to take me to do all, you know, put the sunscreen on, antioxidant cream, exfoliate. I, I don't have, you know, a half an hour in the morning to do this. So, <laughs> Well, it shouldn't take a half hour just to put a cream on your face. Right, <laughs> okay. Keep in mind the exfoliating is only two to three times a week. You just do it at night before you go to bed. It'll take you 30 seconds to a minute. Um, and then the anti-aging cream that I recommend the number one anti-aging cream is a Retin-A or Retinol cream. Okay, it's a, it's a type of vitamin A. So studies have shown that prescription-strength vitamin A called Retin-A or Tretinoin can tighten up skin. It can reverse um, or it can smooth fine lines. Uh, it can lighten dark spots. It can thicken the skin, and it can even reverse early pre-skin cancers. But this is prescription strength, okay? And a lot of people don't have access to a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon to prescribe it. Plus, it's quite aggressive. And sometimes people's skin can react uh, quite aggressively to it. So for those people who don't have access to it, to a dermatologist or plastic surgeon or are a little more sensitive, we have retinol. And retinol is an over-the-counter strength of vitamin A. And you can find that in a lot of over-the-counter drugstore brand creams like Neutrogena's got a good one, uh, Rock has got one. There's all these ones that you can buy for less than 20 or $30 uh, 
um, at the drugstore. And if you had to pick any anti-aging cream, that's the one to start out with. And I'd say probably 70 to 80% or more of dermatologists and plastic surgeons would say if they had to pick one anti-aging cream, it would be a Retin-A or a Retinol. All right. Now, so, Dr. Yun, now what do we do? Let's say, you know, we follow these four steps. We've been doing it. We're diligent about, uh, you know, really doing it on an ongoing basis. But at what point, because you're a plastic surgeon, you look at your patient and, you, you know, it's really not working and, and, and maybe the, pers- the, the patient says to you, well, I think I need plastic surgery. Uh, is there a point where you can tell, like, hey, this isn't going to work on this patient? They need plastics or if they want well, it? It's, it's going to work depending on what your issues are. So if you come in, you say, look, my skin, you know, I just want to look younger and I'd love to look 10 years younger. If you do this, you can also consider if you've got age spots, ways to treat the age spots, and I describe all that in the Age Fix book, um, you can take those 10 years off. However, if you come in and you say, my main issue is I've got a droopy neck, you know, no cream or food is going to make a droopy neck go away. That, for that, you need surgery. You know, if you come in and you say, oh, my gosh, the skin of my upper eyelids is hanging so much I can barely see, there's no cream that's going to make that go away. So in, in the Age Fix book, I do, you know, do recommend, okay, in these situations, if this is your issue, droopy skin, you know, excess skin of your eyes, you know, then unfortunately there are those situations where surgery is the only option. And, yes, you know, you could still eat the right diet. You could still apply the right things to your skin, and that is still going to make you look younger. But if your main focus, once again, is, like I said, a droopy neck, then you're still going to benefit from doing all this other stuff. But unfortunately, surgery is possibly your, own, your best option in that situation. What about your own patients, like before and after? Do you have anything that are, any examples that are, um, you know, outstanding, like somebody who, you know, really looks terrible when they come in to see you and then, you know, they go through the process? Well, let's say not the plastic surgery, but those, the four things that you described, and they, I mean, you look at them, I don't know what the time frame is, um, but like, oh my, you know, they look incredible, they've really lost the 10 years that you're talking about. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and these are things, too, though, that we combine quite often with other types of non-surgical treatments. So, you know, people really want it to continue to take it further than doing laser treatments, you know, considering there are even at-home lasers that can help. There's so many things out there that we're just skimming the surface, you know, on, in a half-hour talk about all the different options there. And that's kind of the most exciting thing right now about the field of plastic surgery is that the future of plastic surgery is not having surgery. And it's all these other ways from injections like Botox and fillers to laser treatments to, you know, we have treatments now where you can lose fat by getting it frozen. You you read a book for 45 minutes and the fat is literally frozen off your love handles and you get 25% of that fat will go away within the next six to eight weeks. And these are things that we didn't have five years ago. So it's a very exciting time, and that's one reason why I wrote the book was to try to give people all, the, all their options, anything from the food to eat to what you put on your skin to treatments you can do at home to treatments you do in a doctor's office, and then those handful of things that, unfortunately, surgery is your only real option for. So what you're saying, so much is unfolding. I mean, this is like a whole new field. So our, for, we only have a couple minutes left, so I want to mention, obviously, the book again, The Age Fix, A Leading Plastic Surgeon Reveals How to Really Look 10 Years Younger, and that's who we've been talking to this morning. So we want to be, go online. You can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere. 
also where can we, because things are changing so rapidly, and, you know, we read your book and then we expect another one coming up shortly, I guess, but uh, how do we keep up? Where do we keep up? What websites do we go to? Yeah, well, my website is dryun.com, D-R-Y-O-U-N.com. Uh, if you sign up for my newsletter, I actually do give a monthly newsletter where I kind of update you on some tips and tricks and secrets, anything from creams, you know, a new cream on the market, uh, a new procedure that we're doing, that type of thing. Um, and then there are websites as well to go to. Uh, make sure if you're going to actually consider real surgery to find a board-certified plastic surgeon, a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons as well. Great. Dr. Jung, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. I mean, lots of new information, great information. And I will continue. I'll sign up for your newsletter because I think I'm one of those people who need, uh, well, we've only touched the surface, I guess, you know, so go out, read the book. Um, we're going to have to say goodbye. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.